This Sunday, as we've mentioned many times through the service, marks the beginning of the season known in the church calendar as Advent. In that statement, if you haven't been around the church much in your life, likely brings up a few questions in your mind. The first of which has to do with the idea of a church calendar. What is that? Well, we all live according to some type of calendar, a system that orders our days and our seasons. And in the Western world, in America, we live according to the Gregorian calendar, which was introduced or instituted in 1582 by Pope Gregory XIII. And in our normal calendar year, we experience certain seasons. In San Antonio, we experience summer and winter. No fall, no spring. And we celebrate certain special days in this calendar. We call them holidays. And we look forward to these days and celebrate them. Things like President's Day or Memorial Day or July 4th. And just like the society we're a part of orders its life around a calendar, looking forward to certain days and seasons together, the church throughout history has also ordered its life together around a calendar known as the church calendar. And while we can fully engage in our society's calendar and really enjoy it as the church, we also, though, have our own special calendar. And this calendar follows along with the life of Jesus throughout the year. From the anticipation of his arrival, which is known as Advent, which is the season we're moving into, to his birth, which is known as the Christmas season that we celebrate, to remembering his journey to Jerusalem where he's going to die, we celebrate that season known as Lent, to his final week where we celebrate Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter, to the season of ordinary time where we focus on growing in the normal mundane life as followers of Jesus. The church has always ordered its life according to a calendar that is intended to shape and form our focus as the church through the year. You will live according to some calendar. The question is, which calendar are you living according to? And this Sunday, it marks the beginning of the season of Advent, like we said. And Advent is a word that literally means arrival. It's a season where the church around the world patiently waits and longs for the arrival of the Savior. And in this season, we look back at Christ's once coming in history when he came in humility, but we also on this side of the cross look forward to the day when Christ will come again in glory and in majesty and in honor. And as we enter this season together at Trinity Grace, we're going to spend time in the book of Isaiah over the next four or five weeks. It's a book that was written some 700 years before the arrival of Jesus And it's a book where God's people are eagerly anticipating God's rescue. They've become the subjects of the nations around them. They're in exile. They've been removed from their home. They're they're in slavery. And the prophet Isaiah comes, and in the midst of their slavery, he reminds them that that God has not forgotten about them. He reminds them that God has a plan for their exile, and he wants to liberate them one day soon. And towards the end of the book, which we're going to be looking at, Isaiah turns to the theme of comfort. He seeks to comfort God's people with the promise that God will come one day soon and set all things right. He'll bring his people back to their land where they'll dwell in safety and security and peace. And as Isaiah picks up this theme of comfort, you notice that he begins highlighting a mysterious figure specifically in chapters 42 through 52 of his book. 
It's a character that he calls or identifies the servant of the Lord. And this servant is going to be one who comes to set all things right for God's people. Like many of you, when it comes to the Christmas season, my family loves to pull out jigsaw puzzles. For some reason, it seems like puzzles go hand in hand with the Christmas season in many families. And we always have one going in our home this time of year. And if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, you know it's smart to begin with the edge pieces, right? The corner pieces and the edge pieces. Because if you get the edge complete, it helps. The four sides really help set a parameter through which you can finish the rest of the puzzle. It gives you an outline that the fullness of the picture will fit into. And in much the same way, the four passages where Isaiah mentions this mysterious figure known as the servant of the Lord, it gives us an outline or parameters in which God's rescuer is going to fit into. Isaiah never mentions a name. He never specifically identifies the rescuer, but he sets up four edges that give us the ability to recognize the rescuer when he comes. Lenses through which to identify this one that he's sending to us. And so to see the first edge that outlines who this rescuer is going to be, you follow along as I read from Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to know him. I wonder if given the chance to list books that have had the biggest impact in your life, which books come to mind? Which authors have had the deepest influence when it comes to the way you view the world? Well, I could list a handful of those kind of books in my own life, but one of them that helps me make sense of the world in a way that I come back to time and time again was one I read during seminary. It was a book about sin, the topic of sin, and it was written by a man named Cornelius Plantinga, and it was awarded the book of the year in 1996 by Christianity Today. And it's a book entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brevery of Sin. Not the way it's supposed to be. What a beautiful phrase that describes so much of what we experience in this life. There is something inside each one of us that innately knows that much of what we experience in this world and in our hearts is not the way it's supposed to be. We see it all around, both internally in our hearts and externally in the structures of society. We see it physically. 
when family members struggling through sickness. We see it when parents can't remember anymore. Bodies that don't work right, cancer, death itself, it's not the way it's supposed to be. We see it in relationships that don't work, gossip, insecurity, divorce, abuse, dysfunctional relationships, it's not the way it's supposed to be. We see it in our emotions. Most of us walk through life in a state of numbness. We don't get sad at things that should break our hearts and we have a hard time rejoicing over good news and we don't get angry at the injustices that we experience and that's not the way it's supposed to be. We see it in our moral fabric. What I mean by that is we can't seem to stop doing those things that we know we shouldn't do. Everyone in the room does things on a weekly, if not a daily basis that we're not proud of and would hope that no one else ever finds out about. And many of us have made promises time and time again that those things will never happen again, only to fail once more. What is it about our hearts that can't seem to stay away from those things that we know bring regret and shame? It's not the way it's supposed to be. In fact, when we look around this world and into our own hearts, the sin and the failure and brokenness we see could accurately be described with a word. And I want you to try this word on for size, chaos. It's a word that means complete disorder and confusion. It'd be hard to think of a more accurate description of what sin has done to us in this world, chaos. Complete disorder and confusion internally and externally. Some of you will know that the Old Testament was originally written in two different languages. We see a little bit of Aramaic specifically in the book of Daniel, but the majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, the word chaos is tobu. And the antonym or opposite meaning of tobu is mishpat, which is our word for justice. And it's really the main point of our passage this morning. Isaiah speaks of a mysterious figure who's going to come and put an end to the chaos that we all experience by bringing justice or right order. If someone promised to put an end to the chaos that you experience in your life and in this world, if someone promised to come and set all things right for you, if someone promised to put an end to sin, you would want to know who that person was. You'd want to make sure that you didn't miss that person when he showed up. And Isaiah begins talking about that character in our passage this morning. This figure comes out of the shadows in many ways, and he becomes more clear as we learn more and more about him through these 10 chapters of Isaiah. And this morning, we're going to get to know this mysterious figure a bit by taking a look at three things. Three quick things, his identity, his mission, and his manner. We're going to look at the identity, the mission, and the manner of this character who comes to put an end to our chaos and to establish justice. First, let's spend a few minutes looking at his identity. As we pick up our passage, it's important to recognize that the world was just as broken and chaotic 700 years ago when Isaiah wrote as it is today. In fact, you could argue that it was more so without technology and modern medicine. Remember, God's people were in exile. 
They were captives to their enemies in Babylon when Isaiah writes this passage to them. Things were in many ways hopeless for God's people at this point in redemptive history. In fact, it was as low as they could go in many ways. They were in a place they never thought that they would be. And this is where, uh, if this was, if there was any hope for a rescue in their minds, if there was any hope for restoration and renewal and things being put right, in their minds, it would require someone coming with unbelievable power and influence. At this point in time, what God's people expected and needed was a king. The kind of rescue they needed, the kind of victory they desired would require no less than a conquering king. But Isaiah comes in verse one and tells them to expect a servant. Sometimes in his book, Isaiah uses this word servant in the plural form, and it refers to the nation of Israel as a whole. But there are other times in Isaiah when he uses this term servant in the singular form. And the servant comes with a mission to accomplish for Israel, ministering to Israel. And in verse one of our passage, the word is singular. It's pointing to one who is going to be sent by God, one in whom the Lord delights, it says, one who's empowered with the Spirit of God. And this person who comes to rescue God's people won't come dominating others. He'll be a servant. Another word for that is a slave. Someone who places himself in the service of others. One who doesn't assert his rights, but uses his privilege and his power so that others might flourish. And one of the things we see about this servant is not only he's a slave, but he's really great. He's great. In verse 1, we see that God has chosen him. We see that God has empowered him with his spirit. We see that God delights in him. And it even harkens forward to Luke chapter 2 or 3 where we see Jesus baptized and a dove descending upon him. And God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and whom I delight. Yet the servant doesn't regard himself as great. And don't we love that? You think about it for a minute. We love when we see it in our life and in this world. We love to see when someone who is truly great that doesn't exert their greatness. There's a video that was going around a few weeks back where Prince Harry of England was visiting Australia. And he was moving through a line of kids and greeting them. And he gets to the end of the line and he comes upon a little five-year-old boy named Luke Vincent. And Luke is as cute as can be, and he's also got Down syndrome. And when you meet the future king of England, there are certain expectations and behaviors that are expected on both sides of the exchange in many ways. But what you see Prince Harry do in the video is he gets on his hands and knees to greet little Luke. And it didn't seem like Luke got the memo either because he wasn't too concerned with the pomp and circumstance that was expected in the video, you actually see him beginning to rub Prince Harry's beard. And he strokes his hair. And he gives him big hugs. And then he turns to his wife and gives the princess hugs as well. And it's just a beautiful picture of someone who is great. It'd be hard to think of someone greater. Stoop down in love and service. On one hand, it is so beautiful when someone who is great doesn't regard themselves as great. But it's nauseating, on the other hand, when someone who isn't great comes and regards themselves as great. 
And what we see from Isaiah is that the one who will come to rescue God's people will be great, but he never regards himself that way. He always takes the form of a servant and this whole idea immediately leads us to someone we know who was great but wasn't necessarily regarded as great and that's our servant Jesus Christ. I like how one author described the life of Christ when he said this. At first glance, Jesus' resume is rather simple. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. Nonetheless, Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who's ever lived. Jesus would have been within his rights to come to earth in all of his majesty and glory and splendor. He could have demanded to be treated with awe and worship and respect. He could have come in great might, physically conquering his enemies. But instead, what we see is he shelves his rights and he comes as a servant. That's the identity of this mysterious figure we see in Isaiah. He's a servant. And since we live on the other side of the cross from the original audience in Isaiah, this servant sounds really familiar to us. He's someone that we've actually met and experienced in person. Now let's turn and spend a few minutes looking at the mission of this servant. You see the mission of this servant and the word that's used most frequently in this passage. And that word is justice. We see it in verses 1, 3, and 4. That this servant is going to be responsible for bringing justice to our lives and to this world. Now the word justice is pretty loaded, especially in our culture and our context. In our culture of racial tension and 24-hour news. But it's important to understand that when the Bible uses this word, it's different than what we normally hear from politicians or celebrities or news anchors. When we see the word justice used in our passage and throughout the Bible, it's the English translation, like I said, of the Hebrew word mishpat. And it takes on a much fuller meaning than we normally think with the word justice. When I think of justice, I tend to think of a courtroom and lawyers and retribution. And when we see the word justice in our passage, it means so much more than that. The word justice is closely tied to the word righteousness in verse 6 of our passage. And it's also closely tied to the Hebrew word shalom throughout the Old Testament. Shalom is a term that's normally translated with the word peace, but it's much more than that. Shalom is universal flourishing. You could say shalom is the way things are supposed to be. And the idea of shalom and justice always go hand in hand in the Old Testament. You always see them next to one another. So the role of this servant is to come and establish justice in this world to bring forth right order, to establish right action that leads to peace. He comes to set things right. The servant comes into a world that is not the way it's supposed to be and he comes to make it the way it's supposed to be. We see in verse 1 and 4 that the servant comes to establish justice for the nations and for the entire earth. 
It's a universal justice that this servant intends to bring. It's justice in a cosmic sense. And it's intended to affect everything, not just our hearts and our souls. It's intended to touch all people, not just the Jews that Isaiah wrote to, but the entire world. This servant is coming to make all things right, and that means everything from sex trafficking to broken families to greed to war to disease to disaster. As the hymn says, he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And this servant isn't just coming to take us to heaven. He also intends to restore shalom in this world, to make all things in this world new things that we can see and touch and feel. And Isaiah is looking forward to the renewal of the universe when it will be as God always intended it to be. When God will usher in shalom or universal flourishing. And Isaiah's readers would have longed for this justice because they were not experiencing it at the time when Isaiah wrote. In fact, instead of justice, what they were experiencing was oppression in subjection. Due to their poor decisions, they were sitting in darkness due to their sin. And it's into this darkness that the servant comes to bring justice. And we see this justice in action in verse 7, where it says that the servant will come to open the eyes of the blind, to bring prisoners from the dungeon, and to bring people out of darkness. And if we're honest, that's what we need even now to have our eyes open to the beauty of Jesus. We need to be set free from our sinful habits and the decisions that continually lead us further and further into oppression and slavery. We need to be brought out of the darkness that we've created with our decisions. And the servant comes to do those things. So we see the mission of the servant is to establish justice in the earth, to bring universal flourishing, And we'll know he's arrived when people's eyes are opened, when prisoners are set free, when light overcomes darkness, both physically but also spiritually. Now, let's spend a few minutes as we close looking at the manner of the servant. We see the manner of the servant described in verses 2 through 4. The first thing we notice in verse 2 is that as this servant comes to establish justice or universal flourishing, He won't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In other words, this servant does not come with flashy self-promotion. He doesn't come with a marketing budget. He doesn't come to make lots of noise or even attract much attention. In fact, you might remember on the eve of his execution, he was given the chance to speak up, but he remained silent so that he might complete the work that he came to do of setting all things right. And Isaiah moves on in verse 3 and says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, Isaiah is speaking of a servant who is coming for those who aren't doing well. For those who aren't doing very well. A bruised reed is a picture of a plant that's been injured beyond repair. The word bruise here literally means internal injury. It's a death blow. And it's the picture of a stalk of a plant hanging over. And it's hanging over in such a way that it can't grow any longer. It's not going to grow back normal. And it's done. 
And these kind of reeds were normally just rooted up and they were thrown out. They were useless. They were just taking up valuable agricultural space. In a faintly burning wick is a picture of a candle on its last leg. When the wick burns so low that the light is barely surviving, when the wick gets to that point, the candle's basically useless. A person has to come and normally cut the wick off. And Isaiah is saying that the servant who is coming is going to be known for his gentleness and his patience. He'll be known for his care and his, his compassion for those who aren't doing well. For those who feel like they're useless. For those who don't really have that much to offer anymore. Like bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. The servant is quiet. He's gentle. He's patient. He cares for people tenderly. He knows we often struggle. Our struggles are not a surprise to him. In fact, you could say our struggles and our failures and our disappointments are actually an expectation for this servant. The servant loves people who are weak and discouraged. In fact, you could say that he only comes to help weak and discouraged people. He doesn't overlook or reject or crush them. And isn't that good news for us? Isn't that good news for our friends and our neighbors? So we see the manner of this servant is humble and compassionate. But in verse 4, we also see that he's faithful and determined. In verse 4, it says, He'll not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And it's painting a picture of the servant's resolve, his commitment. And it's really our great hope that this servant won't give up until he's accomplished the mission that he's come of setting all things right. If you stop and think about it, we give him so many reasons to give up. So many reasons to move on. So many reasons to be discouraged with us. In fact, if you were in his shoes, you would have long ago given up on someone like you. Too many disappointments. Too many heartbreaks. Too many failures. Who makes the same mistakes over and over again? You would have long ago given up on someone like you who's hard of understanding, who turns to other sources for satisfaction and love and fulfillment. But our servant, he doesn't grow faint or discouraged with you. In fact, he has resolved and committed to finish the work he began, oftentimes despite your efforts to sabotage that work. We try to keep him from it all the time. But he is so committed to us. I love how the Puritan Richard Sibbs put it when he said, there's more mercy in him than sin in us. More mercy in him than sin in us. So as we enter this Advent season, there are going to be many things that clamor for our attention. Many concerns and cares that are going to arise in our hearts. There's going to be lots of voices that are calling for our affections. And many of these things that call for our attention will be good and enjoyable things and we should celebrate them. But as we enter the season, often characterized by chaos and external busyness, I think it would benefit us to keep verse one of our passage in mind where Isaiah invites us to behold. Behold, to fix our attention on, to set our affections upon, this servant who has come to make all things right and to set us free. Let me pray for us this morning. 
Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the one who has come in order to set us free and to set things right. We thank you that you are one who has come with great compassion and gentleness into our lives. We thank you that you do not give up on us, but you are set upon serving us, loving us, rescuing us, and one day soon making all things